iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. This is my workshop. This is the place I feel most comfortable in the whole house. Why'd you pick this house? In my ideal world, you never have to meet the rest of my family. I travel around. I hear things. I stop through a town. A family is mentioned to me. You all are quite famous down there, you realize. I am trying one house at a time to rectify these things. All these little imperfections. What are you doing? What are you doing to us? Guilty by proximity, child. Grace will come easily to you. But don't strive against it. Or you will find only misery. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Jordan Hoffman from UGO, and tonight's guest director, Phil Gillette. Hello, everyone. My name is Jordan Hoffman. I'm the movies editor at UGO.com, and it's my uh, great honor to introduce to you a first-time filmmaker by the name of Phil Gillette, the director of Bleeding House, which is having its world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival in like 48 hours, right? Uh, yeah, Wednesday night. Wednesday night. And look how calm he is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel calm. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Um, uh, this is Phil's first film, and we'll talk about him being a first-time filmmaker, but this is not your first artistic endeavor. Uh, Phil comes to the world of cinema uh, from uh, an, an artistic branch that is, I think, somewhat new uh, in independent film, but I think we're going to be seeing a lot more. If it's not theater, it's not uh, painting, it's uh, comics creation. That's and, right. Uh, Phil is a comic writer, not a comic illustrator, which uh, we'll <laughs> talk about in a little bit. So um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, uh, you know, it seems to me, as someone who does read comics, that it is a natural progression. To me, a comic book is are uh, storyboards, unfilmed storyboards in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, but nevertheless, there aren't that many film directors who come from the world of comics. So can we talk a little bit about your experience with that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I think that conception that, that comics are kind of just storyboards waiting to become movies is, is a, a pretty prevalent idea out there right now. But uh, from my perspective, having created both of them now, it's actually a very different process, you know, almost from the moment you decide that you're going to make a comic instead of a movie. Um, 
And for me, writing them, it, it's it's much much different. I mean, movies you write. I mean, it's it's a little bit hard to explain, but movies you kind of write in the present tense, and comics you write almost in the past tense because you're writing specific images as opposed to a flow of images that are going to move. Um, and that to me is a really difficult thing to switch between, actually. Um, and you know, so that to me, I guess, is, is the the central difference really when in writing it. Um, and then when you're making the movie, as opposed to making a comic, it's actually completely different. I mean, there's basically one similarity, which is that when you're making a comic as a writer, you work, or I work very closely with the artist that, that is drawing it and sort of bringing the words to life. And uh, when you're making a movie, you do that, but you do it with you know 30 or 50 or 100 people because you have to be able to sort of speak everybody's language and, and collaborate with each of them in the same way that you're collaborating with an artist. So similarities, but they're... Uh, kind of vastly different ultimately. Sure. Can we take a step back from that a little bit though and maybe help some people with some misconceptions? I think a lot of people think someone who writes comics, they draw, they do word balloons and that is the case for some people mm -hmm. but that's not very common. So can we talk a little bit about the artistic process of comics and we'll also talk a little bit about some of the comics you've created and then we'll talk mm -hmm. about Bleeding House. Yeah, of course. Um, so the artistic process for comics is basically, you know, you... The way I've done it basically is I've you know I come up with an idea for a comic and I either find an artist myself or a publisher wants to do the comic and they find an artist for me um, and then I write a script which literally goes panel by panel so it'll say page one panel one and then it'll have a, a description of a drawing and then you give it to the artist and then they draw it. Um, there used to be a model called uh, they call it the Marvel model where they would draw the story and then somebody would write the dialogue after the story was drawn um, and I tend to kind of similar to that, I'll, I'll write a script um, and somebody will draw it and then there'll be dialogue in there and then I'll go through one last time after it's drawn and change the dialogue based on um, you know things that I know I want to change and also based on what's been drawn. Um, so it's kind of a back and forth, but there is definitely a writer um, and an artist and it's not always the case. Like there are no, like Frank Miller writes and draws and directs movies now too. Um, and uh, But for, for the most part, there is somebody who writes it and somebody who draws it. Well, it's funny you should mention Frank Miller because we were talking about him a little bit back there. Um, there aren't too many comic creators that have made the leap to film. Frank Miller is the only one that I could think of. I don't know if there's any others. There probably are, but I'm not aware. I think John Cassidy was supposed to direct something that Joss Whedon was involved in. Okay. Like maybe an episode of Dollhouse, but okay. I don't know if it happened. And there are some others who've gotten involved in screenwriting, yeah. but as far as directing, no. So uh, what made you decide to, to make the jump other than the lights and the uh, the glory and getting to meet actresses. What was right. the what was it that made you decide to make the? It jump? was just those things. Right. No, uh, so I guess I mean I, I started in um, in film school in a cinema studies department, um, which gives you a certain perspective on film production, but not a very realistic pers uh, perspective on it. Um, and then I was an assistant for a little while and sort of quit being an assistant to write comics, and then. Uh, Part of what my job was when I was assistant was reading scripts. Um, and so you were an assistant to a producer? Or? Yep. yep, to a can couple you, of indie producers. Can you who you were assistant to? Uh, one of them is back there and ended up producing my movie. That's Will back there. Uh, and then some other companies as well I, I worked as assistant for. So um, where was I? Oh, yeah, so you read a lot of scripts. Um, and you read a lot of really, really, really bad scripts. So after I went to start writing comics and had a little bit of success uh, writing comics, I got a job doing an Indiana Jones comic um, when that last movie came out. I thought to myself, well, I, I can do okay with comics, so maybe I should try to get back into film. And um, that's how I wrote the script that would eventually become The Bleeding House. And then uh, I had never actually intended to direct it myself. Um, 
and the producers tried to get some money behind it for a while, and eventually they sort of decided that we could make it for a very, very low budget, and I could direct it myself if we could put that together. And I was like, hey, let's give it a shot. Um, So we did. And that's kind of how I I jumped back and forth between the two. Okay, Um, cool. So so the Bleeding House is part of Tribeca's series, which is called Cinemania, which is, if I may speak bluntly, where all the cool movies are. It's the, uh, (laughs) the science fiction stuff, the... If you heard about the movie called Underwater Love, which is sort of a borderline pornographic Japanese Fantasia film. Is it? I didn't hear uh, that. Yeah, it's pretty wild. <laughs> uh, another cool movie called Beyond the Black Rainbow, which you should check out. And Bleeding House, which if you had to use the old blockbuster model of where would you put the video in the store, you'd probably put it in the horror section. Do you yeah. consider the film to be a horror film? I consider the film to be a dark thriller, which is to say that I don't know if it's necessarily explicitly gory and sexual enough to, to satisfy a real horror audience. But I also think it's too horrific for the people who like thrillers. So I think we fall in this strange valley directly between the genres. I certainly set out to make a horror film, but I somehow managed to make a atmospheric dark thriller. That's what I call it. But that, there's no section like that in, in, the, movie, in, uh, in the movie store. So. ADT, atmospheric yes, dark exactly, thriller. That's exactly okay. what it is. <laughs> Very nice. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the film. We've seen the trailer can you can you tell me a little bit about uh, you know what what's going on behind behind that? It looks to me like well, I mean, I've seen the film, but from that trailer, it's a spooky house, family with secrets, a guy who looks a little bit like Tom Wolfe shows up, <laughs> and then there's some blood. So so give us a little more for people who are thinking of what else to see during the Tribeca Festival. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, I mean, that's actually a pretty good setup. It's about a family um, that lives somewhere in Middle America, um, and they are suffering under the weight of some kind of um, a dark past basically and one night a mysterious stranger shows up and then mayhem uh ensues basically that that about sums it up um and uh you know it has a lot of really interesting characters one of the one of the family members um is a very odd young girl uh named gloria but who only answers to the nickname blackbird um and uh yeah that's really about it i think you know you know, it's funny, um, part of what, what makes the movie interesting, and again, I've seen it, is there is, uh, and it's part of the tagline, there is a secret, there is a twist. And it's something that I'm not going to reveal, lest you tackle me right here on the stage. Um, but you are a first-time filmmaker, part of your job is to get people to see your movie. How do you deal with the marketing of this film, marketing of yourself, by saying, oh, there's a cool twist, but I, I can't tell you what it is, and, you know, is, is that something that you've had hardships with, maybe with the press or, you know, uh, in the marketing materials of the, of the picture? You know, it's interesting. I, I, maybe I'm bad at marketing myself. I forget there's a twist. So, like, I haven't even, <laughs> I haven't even really thought about it. But, yeah, there is a twist. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of like shooting yourself in the foot to say your movie has a twist because as soon as you say it, everybody's like, oh my God, what is it? What is it? And I don't, I don't think that our twist is buried so deep in the movie that you don't necessarily see it coming, which doesn't bother me. I mean, I, I sort of feel like it, there's fun in, in kind of thinking you might know where something's going to go and then see if it actually goes there, um, which is kind of how I tried to approach the, the twist nature of this movie because I didn't think we were ever going to pull off anything like a sixth sense or something and I, never, I never, would never have wanted to really. Um, but yeah, there is, there is, uh, there are secrets in the movie and they do get revealed in the end. So, um, that's our twist. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, it definitely does have a, uh, deliberate pace. It's not, mm-hmm. there are a couple of moments of quick editing, but it's not a fast paced film that is what you, you know, was so common in Hollywood. How much of that was dictated by your own personal aesthetic or how much of that was due to the budget of the film or just the story you wanted to tell? 
Um, that's a really good question. It was about 50-50. I mean, honestly, if you would have asked me when we started, like when I first took on the job to direct it, what I wanted it to feel like, I would have said Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it feels exactly the opposite of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, it, it, Texas Chainsaw has a great style to it, um, but we ended up making something much more stately um, and, I mean, just a much, much different pace and style than a lot of the horror movies you see. Um, and, you know, the style of the movie actually ended up being heavily influenced by um, a Japanese filmmaker named Kiyoshi Kurosawa who has made a lot of really, really good, I guess you call them horror movies, and my favorite of his is this movie called Cure, um, which is about um, hypnosis and murder and a lot of sort of interesting things. And he, he tends to make movies that are very stately in their pace um, and atmospheric in their mood and, and full of shadows and interesting things. So that, that's where we ended up going with it, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. I, uh, maybe next time I'll make something more like Texas Chainsaw, but I think, I think it turned out pretty good um, the way it is. Um, I should point out also, um, this is one of the films that Tribeca is making available right now on VOD. Yep. So if you can't make it to the screenings that are happening later this week, um, but you're intrigued by the film or you think that friends of yours might be intrigued by the film, they can find it on demand. Yeah. Why they have to demand and can't ask politely, I don't know. But <laughs> you can find it on demand out there on your various VOD uh, platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, a scene like this, which is, you know, it borders on the gruesome. You are a first-time film director. There had to have been some good comedy behind, behind the scenes as... Uh, <laughs> as this is your first time up to bat and you're dealing with people who are being drained of their blood and, and giving, uh, you know, and tor- torturing one another. How, yes. how are some experiences? How did that go? Uh, it went pretty well. I mean, my unrelated to the goal, my most embarrassing story about being a first-time director is that I didn't actually know when to say action on the very first day, the very first take. Uh, so I said it too early. Apparently, you have to wait for the camera guy to say set, and then you can say action. So that's a really important lesson I learned. Um, as for the the gruesome stuff, I mean, it, it, it went pretty well. We left one actress tied to a table for a little bit too long, um, <laughs> shooting a scene a little bit later in the movie, and uh, I had to go and apologize to her personally. So that was awkward for me. I feel really bad about it. We're friends now, but it was... Uh, I learned that if you're going to leave... An, well, and she asked to be tied up. She was like, she's like, really tie me up. I can use it in the performance. And then uh, it went on too long. Oh, so this, you weren't even shooting while you tied her up. No, we were shooting. Oh. We were shooting. <laughs> she just didn't know we were going to be shooting quite so long with her tied up. So, but she's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, uh, we saw a little bit the, the the family that is being bound in this scene and the mysterious stranger who goes by the name of Nick, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Uh, Nick has a very He's a southern drawl, a sort of a Faulkner-esque way of speaking. Mm-hmm. Faulkner by way of Foghorn Leghorn, maybe a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, he's, he is a, a frightening figure, but also funny at times. So can we talk a little bit about the balancing act between someone being frightening and being funny, but not to the point of breaking uh, the fear? Yeah. It's a really, really hard line to walk, I think. Um, and I mean, you know, as written, Nick actually was much more explicitly sinister than he ended up being in the movie. And I think it works to our advantage that, that um, Patrick Breen brought a kind of um, sinister levity to the role, actually, which I, I hadn't really thought about being there, but he really managed to pull it out. Um, it's hard, though, because, you know, you if you think about a, a character like Freddy Krueger or something who in the original Nightmare on Elm Street is quite funny, but also incredibly sinister. And in later movies that, you know funniness starts to become camp and starts to become just a joke. So I, I, I definitely didn't want to make a horror movie that was making 
fun of itself. Um, instead, we just have a character who occasionally makes almost decides uh, that I think are, you know, in the logic of the character there to amuse himself. Um, and if they amuse the audience too, that's great. Uh, and if not, you know, that's fine too. One of the characters in your film is obsessed with um, dead things in general, but in it's the, it's the teenage girl. She's like 15, 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And she has in her room uh, bugs and various sorts of creepy crawlies pinned to her wall. Now, this is a low-budget film, so that often means cramped quarters, you know, a lot of moving around, maybe having lunch in the same room that you're shooting in. Was, you know, what was it like working with... Where did you find those uh, objects of art to pin to the wall, and what was it like working in a cramped set with them? Uh, we we I found them on the internet from a place called the what's it called God of Insects or something. It's a company in I think they're based in New York and they'll just sell you. Um, so if anybody wants a collection of pinioned bugs, I highly recommend them. They'll sell you stuff and they have they have really fancy sets, but we couldn't afford a fancy set, so we got their. I mean, I hate to say it, but we got their bargain basement set of insects, um, and then uh, we spent a day pinning them to the wall, and then you know. I think we kept the continuity of the bugs pretty well. I think maybe we, there are a couple that might fall off if you look really carefully. But um, we did a pretty good job of keeping the sets uh, clear. I mean, we had, luckily, we were shooting in a house big enough that we had a space that was sort of dedicated for t- to eating and you know, like hanging about. So we didn't have to, uh, we didn't have to you know, risk it too much. A funny thing, actually, about the house is that none of those beds are real beds. I think one of those beds is real. Everything else is just an air mattress. So when actors had to sit on beds, it was really like, you know, the silly... Yeah, the silliest things are hard on a low-budget movie. Like, you had to, like, sit very carefully, and then if they, if they moved too much while they were acting, you could tell that it was an air mattress. So it's just a really stupid <laughs> set design note. <laughs> These are the things that you're looking forward to not having problems with on your, on your next Well, film. the thing is, if you can get one real mattress, you can just move it from set to set. Yeah, okay. uh, so if we could get that next time, that would be awesome. Okay. Um, um, I think in a little bit we may want to go out to some uh, Q&A if there are folks out there that have some questions. Um, we have somebody here with a microphone. Uh, why don't we uh, see if we can take a question from the audience, if anybody has one. If you guys just raise your hand, I'll bring the mic to you. Uh, coming from um, the world of comics, did you find anything like visual challenging doing a film for the first time that you wanted to maybe look a little bit more comic book style or was that not something you considered? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I feel like I would have had that problem whether coming from comic books or not, just given the budget of the movie. Um, it's hard to get, uh, I guess, especially for the movie like this, like if, if you had... Um, read the script, the description of the house is actually very dense, and it was really, really difficult to get the kind of density of set design. I mean, it, the house in the movie looks quite spare, so it, it's... Um, there are a lot of things that we had to sort of sacrifice. But, you know, you know, it's... Even in comics, you struggle to get the image you have in your mind on the page. Um, one of my artists is here. His name's Rick. He's back there, and oftentimes we uh, <laughs> have disagreements about how something should look. So, I mean, you know, it, in any art form where you're uh, you know, the writer and, and s- there's going to be an image made of your words. It's, you're going to be dealing with a difference um, from how it is in your head and how it is uh, when it comes to fruition. But, you know, it, it, I've been, I'm going to say in my career thus far, 90% uh, pleasantly surprised with how things end up translating, even if they're different than how I thought they were going to look. Um, they turn out looking, if not better, than uh, just as good in a way I hadn't expected. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that happens. So, Next question in the middle. Uh, I was wondering um, if you storyboarded the film and how closely you stuck to it. And, and if you could talk about your uh, collaboration with the, the cinematographer. Yep. Um, we didn't storyboard the movie, actually. Uh, shockingly, since I come from comics, you would have thought that it would have been storyboarded. Um, but we shot uh, with a DP named Frederick Fasano, who um, has shot a number of features. He shot uh, Dario Argento's last two or three movies, uh, The Mother of Tears and, and um, Do You Like Hitchcock, and I think one other one. Um, and he didn't want to storyboard. He actively didn't want to storyboard, but he actively wanted to shot list kind of obsessively. So we spent a lot of time... Uh, discussing shot lists and, and, and talking about what kind of shots we were going to get. And then when we got on set, sort of threw them all out because it was really hard. Again, in, in a house that is a house, so you can't move walls and you can't um, move things around. And moving at the pace we had to move because of the, the budget was so low. I mean, if we hadn't had those shot lists, we would have been completely lost. But there were a lot of times where it was like, you know, we have to improvise something else here because we're not going to get all of these shots to, to work, you know. Um, but in the future, I would storyboard. Uh, whether the DP wants to or not, just just because it would be really handy to have that tool. So, what was your camera rig? We're in the Apple Store. We can talk technical a little bit. What was your uh, camera rig, and what did you cut on? We shot with the Red, uh, which was great, except when it wasn't. Which is to say that it uh, has like the technical problems you hear about. It. Like it, its camera body will need to be rebooted, and and on a movie of this size, when you need to reboot your camera body, and you lose minutes or seconds, you start to get a little bit frustrated. But the quality of the image is, is fantastic, and I, I'm very happy with it. Um, and we cut with, uh, with Final Cut Pro, um, just on like a system. Yeah. Uh, next question to your left. Hi. Um, it seems like most new filmmakers start with short films, just to kind of get experience, get their name out there, and have something to show people. How do you think you were able to have such a successful first film that's a feature? I don't know if you have any shorts before this, but that's um, interesting. Yeah, I don't have any shorts before this. Uh, and my answer is mostly luck. I, uh, I really don't know. I mean, I, um, I really honestly don't know. I, <laughs> I kind of just got lucky. It, uh, in, in hindsight, I would have liked to have maybe made a short first just so I could avoid embarrassing problems like saying action before I was supposed to. Um, and I would love to actually make a short now just to kind of hone my skills and, and do something. Because, like, you know, it's funny. Like, there's a trade-off when you make a feature because it costs so much more. There's an enormous amount of pressure to make something that's going to make that money back. Um, and it would be nice to make a short where, again, it's going to cost money, but you don't have that... Um, the monetary pressure to like to perform basically um and i don't know i mean i i don't have anything to compare this experience to because it's my first time so um i think it turned out well like uh, part of it for me was definitely like just kind of maintaining a level of sanity and, and knowing i mean not to call it a painful experience but some some days on set were actually incredibly painful just because kind of how fast we had to move and how nervous I was about what we were getting. Um, but you kind of just have to focus on like getting it done and knowing when you've got something that you think you can work with. Um, so that's, how that's many, about how many shooting days were there. We shot for 15 days and then we ended up doing three days of additional shooting, um, about a few months later. Um, and we shot all nights in November in North Jersey and a lot of exteriors. So it was really, really cold. And I'm not, despite being a really big horror fan, actually much of a night person. So it was really, really hard for me to make that switch to getting up at like 2 PM and, and getting out to Jersey to shoot in a really cold house. <laughs> 
nighttime's in Jersey. That says horror to me. So <laughs> who else has a question? Uh, down in the second row. I hope my answer, a couple of my questions were actually answered in terms of the camera that you used and, uh, uh, but also, and also about locations. I just wanted to know how much was indoors and how much did you shoot outdoors? And uh, did you use multiple cameras at some point? Or, and also, could you talk, talk about lighting and maybe your budget? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we shot, uh, it was a three-week shoot, three five-day three, five weeks. We shot two indoors and one full week outdoors, uh, one full five-day week outdoors. Um, and it was definitely, we shot the middle week outdoors. It was definitely great to get back inside uh, afterwards. I, I mean, I would shoot outdoors again if I had to, but it was really horrible. And we had these generators that were really loud. So it was just, like, everything about shooting outdoors was, was bad. Um, like, the wind kept blowing our lights down, and uh, it was just a painful experience. Um, and much nicer to be indoors, even if the house was cold and, and damp. Um, in terms of lighting, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't unfortunately know technical specifics for what kind of lighting package we were using and stuff like that. I mean, I know, um, when talking with the DP about what I wanted, it looked like I, I showed him, uh, that, uh, Kyoshi Kurosawa movie, I was talking about Cure and, and we sort of talked about, um, shadows and, and mood and stuff like that. Um, and in terms of the, the, like, budget of the whole film, is that, like, uh, it's ultra low budget, so, like, under a million dollars. Well, well under a million dollars? Can I say that? Okay. The producer says it's okay for me to say well under a million dollars. <laughs> so that, that was our budget. Um, and it's, uh, it's hard to make a movie for that much, as it turns out. <laughs> like, you have to do a lot of stuff on your own, and uh, I my producer will attest to the amount of grueling activity he had to put himself through to get the movie made. So um, it's really hard. But uh, as it turns out, it turned out pretty good, so I'm happy to have done it. And it, I mean, it, it's funny, too, that, that I, uh, I think I kind of actually hated directing while I was doing it, but then as soon as it was done, I was like, oh, yeah, I would totally do that again. I would totally go through that again to do it. So it's a funny, um, a fun, really funny process that way. So. Something that was really uh, striking to me was the music in the film. Can we talk a little bit about who the composer was? And uh, can you maybe, even though we didn't hear too much of it, maybe mm-hmm. describe mm-hmm. what you were trying to evoke with the music? Yep. Uh, the music is composed and performed by an Icelandic uh, woman named Hildur. And I'm going to slaughter her last name because it's Icelandic and uses a letter that we don't have in English. Uh, I pronounce it Gudna Dottir, but she pronounces it some other way that sounds much better than that. Um, and we found her, I mean, it, it, the music actually was really hard for me. I didn't want to cut to music because I'm a big believer that you should make the image work as best as it can, and then you can put music to it. And if you cut to music, I think you end up using that as a crutch, um, too early on. I don't know if I'm right about that, but that was my philosophy going in. So, you know, our first cuts didn't have any music and then the time came to put music on it and I was like, I have no idea. So I tried a lot of different things, um, and stuff that would feel really weird in the movie, like some weird industrial stuff and some weird like black metal-ish stuff, and, and none of it was really working. Um, and then my wife found uh, an album by Hilder, uh, and I used some of her music from her album on, you know, as a temp score, and it worked really, really well. Uh, so I showed it to the producer, and, and he was like, hey, great, let's, you know, let's get something like this. And then he was like, or we could just try to get her to do it. So we approached her through her... Um, through her managers, um, and she was really, really great and really excited to do it. So I actually, she lives in Berlin. I got to go to Berlin for two days and sit with her and, and um, you know, talk about the music. Uh, and I, um, I mean, the music, again, is, is odd for a horror movie in that it is sort of atmospheric. 
I keep using that word. Like it's it's atmospheric and kind of mysterious and uh, you know dark in a very it's lyrical way. A lot of way. like marimbas or sort of like almost chimey type. Uh, yeah. That's how I, I don't know exactly yeah. what instruments. Yeah, she was I mean using, she's, but she's a she's a cellist by trade. So and then she would use other things. If she has a great apartment. She has got like five really fancy cellos and then these other instruments she plays. So I mean the the two main characters have their own themes and and the young girls is the is that chimey kind of thing and. Um, the Nick, the the stranger, has um, a theme that's mostly on cello, but is on piano a few times. And there's a little clarinet in there too. So it, it's um, kind of a spare and mysterious soundtrack. But I highly recommend her albums if you're at all into uh, classical music and cello, cellists and Icelandic people. I guess I don't know <laughs> why not. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm actually really really happy with the soundtrack. And that's one of those things that you know you don't when you're making a movie you start doing it and you have an idea of what you think it's going to be. Um, and the music for me really, really brought our final cut together and, and kind of turned it into something that, again, I was a little bit surprised by and really, really pleased with. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, now's as good an opportunity as any. You have another project which is coming out into the marketplace, as yep. it were, in August of this year, which is a new graphic novel that, it's not an ongoing comic series, it's a graphic novel that's complete mm-hmm. called uh, Petrograd. Yep. Why don't we take a minute to talk a little bit about Petrograd and, and tell us a little bit about that? I would love to talk about Petrograd. <laughs> Petrograd is a historical spy epic uh, that is set in Russia in 1916, and it's about the assassination of Rasputin. Um, and its main characters are a community of British spies um, living in, in Petrograd, um, which is a city that would become St. Petersburg uh, and Leningrad and various other things. And uh, it's a really involved um, and really exciting kind of I guess I call it a proto-spy story because it's sort of like I wanted to write a spy story that wasn't James Bond and that wasn't Nazis and that wasn't Cold War. Um, so I picked this milieu basically to explore the roots of all those sort of spy tropes that you'd run into eventually. Um, and it has a really infamous and horrible murder as its, uh, as its centerpiece, which is really exciting because who doesn't like that? Sure. You know? And this is out this summer with... It's Oni Press that's putting it out? Or? Oni, Oni Press. Oni Press, yep. excuse me. Yeah, cool. Uh, any other questions? Uh... Right here in the middle. I know you said this is your first film. Um, is there any suggestions that you will give to uh, an aspiring filmmaker making his first film that you learn in this process? Yeah, there's a lot of things I would say probably. Uh, my big thing and the hardest thing for me actually honestly was dealing with the time constraints because I had no idea how fast we were going to have to move and no idea, I mean, just stupid things like how long it would take to set lights up and then how fast I was going to be expected to make a decision about a take before I had to say move on or not. Um, so I would say like be incredibly prepared to have to move quick, especially if you're working without a lot of money. Um, and that, of course, means also knowing, knowing both what you want and what you will take and then being able to identify what you can use when you see it. Um, so all those things, which is a lot of like, you know, it takes sort of a lot of forethought to be able to, to juggle all those things. But I, I guess that would be my key piece of advice. And also, again, depending on budget, you know, there is... I think there's a, a need and a tendency of directors to be incredibly perfectionist, but uh, if you're working on a very low budget, you have to be able to mutate that perfection and, and take what you can get and, and to get a movie done and get it done as well as you possibly can. So not to, not to dissuade you from perfectionism, but uh, I would say don't be afraid to um, be open-minded about what you think is perfect, I guess. 
Is that good enough advice? Okay. <laughs> Do we have other questions? Down in the front here. Hi, uh, my name is John Keebler. Um, I'm an actor, and I was very interested in your talking about the the main uh, the um, the main uh, country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> talking about talking about how he brought things to the uh, to the role that you had no idea was in there. Yep. Did you find that overall that was most the actors on the set, or did you have to do a lot of like coaching with that, or how how and what was your relationship with the actors? I mean, in that in that process. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, it was it was that idea that that actors find things in in something you've written that you didn't know was there. I think is really fascinating. Like I saw this is an anecdote completely unrelated to my movie, but I think it's interesting. Uh, I went to see um, Alan Rickman, who was like talking before a screening of Die Hard, and he was talking about how he basically the whole part of the movie where he dresses. Uh, where he meets Bruce Willis and pretends not to be one of the terrorists was an Alan Rickman. Like, Alan Rickman was like, well, if I'm this guy, I wouldn't dress as a terrorist. I'd dress in a regular suit, and then maybe I can meet him later on, and, and he won't know that I'm me. Um, and then they were like, oh, yeah. And then they wrote it into the script, which I think is really interesting. I have no idea if it's true. Maybe he was making it up. But it's a really interesting idea. Um, and, you know, I honestly, of all the people who worked on the movie, I was the most scared to work with the actors because I feel like, you know, everybody on a movie has... Um, kind of a specific language that they speak um, and I sort of felt like I understood everybody's language but I really wasn't sure that I understood how actors, you know, how you communicate with an actor and get what you want out of them. I was fortunate enough to have actors who um, all really understood their characters really, really well um, and, and like Patrick, many of whom brought something a little bit different to the role um, and like a lot of things in the movie and, and like I was just sort of saying about you know what it takes to, to make a movie I, I wanted to um, I guess, allow myself to be open to what actors wanted to try um, with their roles. Uh, and that, you know, had it been a bigger budget movie and had we had more money, I would have loved to have done that more often. And I kind of like, again, not knowing what I was saying, said to a lot of the actors when we were um, casting them, oh, well, I'll try to give you some takes where you can try something else different. And then, of course, you know, you only have like two or three takes and like, you know. So I made some false promises, but, you know, I would, I would love to sort of give actors a, um, you know, the leeway they need to try stuff. I mean, it's funny, like, I, I have a large amount of respect for both um, Kubrick and Altman as filmmakers, but they seem to have treated actors completely differently. Um, and I don't really know exactly where I fall on that line, but I think there's, uh, I don't know, it's interesting to think about, I guess. Does that answer your question? Great. Rick wants to ask me a question. Um, since you work in both comics and film, and I know in this movie you use some comic art as inspiration, would you ever blend the two and make a comic book into a movie or maybe even write a new comic and turn it into a movie or even reverse it, start a movie, and have a comic that goes into it? <laughs> the hell kind of question is that, Rick? <laughs> He's going to hate that one, by the way. I, um, <laughs> I'd see Petrograd. That sounds really cool. I'd pay 10 bucks to see that. Yeah, I, the problem with Petrograd as a movie is that I don't... Th I, and not to um, insult American audiences, but I don't think Americans care about Russia in 1916. They might care about Rasputin, but I feel like I feel like if it's not like Mel Gibson playing a uh, revolutionary war hero or something, I don't know. Unless you got like James McAvoy you or something. You get a cool guy. You get a cool actor, and they don't worry about it. We'll talk later. Okay. <laughs> um, what was the question? Oh, ad adapting the two. I mean, I. Uh, 
it's hard to say. Like, I tend to be kind of snobbish about how I think a thing should fit into its own medium. Like, I, um, but that being said, I've kind of, I've kind of loosened my, my opinion on that. But I, uh, I don't know. Like, take, for example, the Watchmen adaptation, which I thought was really, really horrible and never, ever, ever should have been made. Um, so, like, I, I just worry that when you, when you start to view, especially comics as just, as we were saying, just storyboards uh, waiting to be filmed, you, you kind of strip what's intrinsically interesting about that art form out of it. Um, but that's, like, kind of an over-intellectualized well, What are some of the comic book movie adaptations that you feel really nailed it? Or have there been any? Um, well, okay. I haven't... It's funny, like I haven't read some of these comics. Like History of Violence was a comic first, and I haven't I haven't read that comic, but it's a it's a brilliant movie. Cool. Yeah, um, I think Road to Perdition was really good. I, I you know I liked I really really liked the Spider Man the first two Spider Man movies actually, but but those are funny because they're not really adaptations of comics. They're adaptations of comic book characters, and they take you know they sort of they pull what they need and they they drop what they don't. Um, I thought some parts of Sin City were actually quite good as an adaptation. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of that's <laughs> all I can think of. All the, what about you? you? You read comics. You do this yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I think, like you say, some of the adaptations, I think The Dark Knight is really great. Yeah. I'll, I'll continue to stay on that bandwagon. Yeah, yeah. But it's not really an adaptation of a specific uh, run or a graphic novel. It's yep. a little bit Batman Year One, but not really. It's yep. sort of a... It's sort of a but a history of violence. Going, I I'm going to throw down. I actually think Watchmen has value. I think Watchmen is pretty cool, it's fun. Um, but I have no comment on that. It, it is just like let's film this book. It's sort of pointless. That's I think I'll I'll agree with you that it's a pointless movie. Yeah, but it's I like think it's, it's like a it's like a like a I don't know what the budget was thirty million more than that like like a, like a fifty million dollar commercial for a comic book, which is great. Like I'm happy I'm happy to have. You know, Watchmen get that kind of advertisement, but I don't know what you get out of the movie that you don't get better out of the comic book. Nothing. Yeah. Well, Melina Ackerman is the only thing okay, you get okay, out of it. Fair that. enough. Guys, I think we have time for two more questions. And in the front here. Yeah, um, basically, a uh, follow up question is re- regarding related to what the other gentleman asked about the actors and, and my other question about the budget in terms of. Uh, the above the line. Did, how much? Fam- how many famous actors did you get, or somewhat famous actors? And did, how much of the budget? What percentage of the budget did you have to dole out for the for the for the above right. the line right. as opposed to production uh, and we, and post production? Okay. Um, we don't. I guess technically speaking, have any famous actors? I mean, uh, Patrick Breen, who you saw on screen, is probably our most famous actor, and he's um, mostly known as as a stage actor. He was in like Galaxy Quest and Men in Black and some Law and Order episodes. Um, and the actors all made the same day rate as the as the rest of the crew. Um, I sh- I don't think Will's paying attention, but if he was, I would get him to confirm that he's not paying attention. Uh, the actors all made the same as the crew, right? Yeah, yeah. So the so everybody it was a very like communist production that way. Like everybody was making the same. Um, and then when we got into post production, I mean, I ended up having to cut it mostly myself. We had an editor for a little while, um, and then I sort of finished it on my own with a friend of mine who I mean, I'd never directed and never cut before either. So I learned um, uh, Final Cut Pro to do it, and I had a friend who sort of came on and and like showed me the, the 
you know, the hotkeys and the shortcuts and, and, you know, made sure that I wasn't screwing anything up uh, irreparably. And, you know, I, I worked cheap on my own movies. So post-production ended up, well, editing ended up being cheap, but like other post-production processes ended up being expensive, like doing a really good sound mix, which um, is incredibly important, ended up being rather expensive. Although I, I hear we got a deal on it, but it was still like a good chunk of money. Um, so, yeah, you know, does that answer the question good enough? Okay. <laughs> uh, last question. Nobody has any other questions for me. In the third row? Oh. Um, what was the blood? What was the blood made out of? Uh, you know, I got asked that question backstage, and I'm sorry to say I don't know. The, uh, the guy who did our effects um, is a guy named Jeremy Sellenfriend who runs a studio called Monster in My Closet in, in Jersey. His studio is, like, just down the road from every shot. And he, if I'm not mistaken, actually guards his blood recipe pretty closely. And I know this. I know that there was some he told me was okay to have in an actor's mouth, and some he told me wasn't, but that was after we'd already put some in an actor's mouth. So <laughs> I don't know what that means about the recipe or, or if it's just, I think later on he might have told me it was just because he likes to put mint in the ones that go in people's mouths, but I, I honestly don't know. Um, and he has big, you know, big jugs of it in his, um, in his studio. He's also very precious about it. Like any, he really wanted it to like us not to use it in ways he couldn't get it back. So there was a lot of like, like there's a lot of blood recycling, which is which is strange. So I don't I don't know what that means about what it's made of, but uh, yeah. I'm afraid to ask. Yeah. Uh, Phil, you're on Twitter. Why don't we tell everybody what your Twitter handle is if they want to follow you as you continue your career and yes. to. Uh... Yeah, uh, my Twitter handle is PMJeepers, J-E-E-P-E-R-S, uh, which is a nickname that I somehow acquired somewhere. I also have a Tumblr. You can l- watch, my t- watch me tumble at philipgillette.tumblr.com. I think they're .com. I don't know. It's my Tumblr. They, they're linked. You'll see, if you see one, you'll see the other. <laughs> Excellent. And I'm on Twitter as well. I'm jhoffman6, the numeral six. You can read my musings about the world of cinema at ugo.com. And I think we've come to a conclusion. So... Thank you for being here. Thank Thanks, you, everybody. Phil. Uh, pick up a few iPads on the way out. They're going like hotcakes. <laughs> and uh, be sure to check out films at the Tribeca Film Festival, and you can watch Bleeding House immediately on VOD. And, and on, where, on, on iTunes. iTunes. You can watch on, it on iTunes. iTunes. There oh. it is, part of our series at the Tribeca. Thank you again to Phil Gillette, and thank you so much for coming out tonight. The film, The Bleeding House, as mentioned, available on iTunes. You can find it right there, uh, and you can go on and rent it right now and watch it. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful week.